Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, special welcome if you're new or visiting. Uh, as Joel said, we know we've got people, family in town sometimes over Labor Day weekend. We're just so glad that you're here with us uh, and that we can worship together. And whether you're here today or if you're catching up on the sermon later because you're up at the cabin or something, uh, I just want to again extend that invitation for you all to join us next week for our fall kickoff. So we're really excited, as Joel said, just to settle into some of the rhythms of fall, to reconnect, uh, to have time to be together and to worship God together. We're excited to start our new sermon series. Um, our third kids' room is opening, which is super exciting. Uh, and we're going to have an ice cream truck after, and who doesn't love ice cream? So if you are here with us or if you're watching online, really encourage you to come and join us next week for that. But today, before we move into our new sermon series, we are finishing our series on the book of Jeremiah. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump into that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to worship you this morning, and thank you also for speaking to us through your word, through the book of Jeremiah, through the rest of scripture that you have given us. We know, as it says, that it is alive and active, and we have experienced that as we have learned more about who you are uh, and who that makes us. So Lord, I pray that that would be true this morning as well, that we would come to your word with open hearts and open minds to be challenged and to be encouraged by all that you have to say to us. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so if you haven't been with us so far this summer, maybe you're new or visiting, we have spent the summer months in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And the book of Jeremiah is actually the longest book in the whole Bible. And not only is it the longest book, it is also a bit of a challenge to read through as it does not go in chronological order. It sort of jumps around, gives you a little bit of this and then a little bit of that. And unfortunately, it does not give us the time uh, little like notes that TV and movies often give us, like three hours earlier or six months later. And so it's, it can be a challenging book to read through. So first of all, I just want to give a thanks to Joel for organizing the sermon series. It's not an easy one to map out. Uh, and then I also want to just encourage you, if you haven't yet, to read through the whole book of Jeremiah. It is a longer one. But I think that with all of the kind of points that we've talked about throughout this sermon series, it'll be easier for you to read through it now, kind of have those anchoring points throughout it of the themes that we've talked about and different things. So if you haven't read through it um, or haven't read through it recently, I encourage you to maybe think about doing that this fall. Just kind of work your way through it, thinking through all of the things we've talked about so far in the sermon series. And the big anchor... The big main point that we keep coming back to throughout the book of Jeremiah is this idea of building and planting. So it's what we called the whole sermon series, and we did that because it's an idea that continues to show up throughout the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it's a part of the call that Jeremiah receives from God when he's commissioned to be a prophet. So I want to review that quickly since we are 12 weeks in, and this was from the very first week. Uh, this is from Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10. It says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth. 
and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. And as we've walked through the book, we've talked about how Jeremiah's message has two parts. First of all, it has that idea of uprooting, tearing down, destroying and overthrowing, so kind of bringing out all of the things that are there and pulling out the things that need to change. And then the second piece is this building and planting. So while God challenges the people of Jeremiah, he doesn't just want to tear them down. He actually wants to build something new in its place. And so that's what we've been talking about these last few weeks towards the end of the sermon series. The beginning was very heavy on the uprooting and tearing down, and now we're getting into some of that building and planting. What is it that God wants to build and to plant in his people? And today we're going to look at that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So I'm going to read it for us, and I want you to listen and follow along. You can follow along on the screen or on your Bibles. Um, And I want you to listen for that language of uprooting and tearing down and building and planting. So Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So right away, right off the bat, God says, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. So I'm hoping as you were listening, you picked up on that being some of this building and planting language, something new. God's starting something that's going to be new and different from what had been there before. And when you look at why he needs to make this new covenant, he's not afraid to tell them. It's because of you. You are the problem. This is not like, you know, normally in breakups, people like to say like, oh, no, it's not you, it's me. Really, it's all, I just need to grow. You're, you're perfect. There's nothing wrong. Right? God's not saying that. He's saying, no, you are the problem in this relationship. He says, you broke the covenant. Even though I was faithful to you, I was like a husband to you, and I took you by the hand, I led you out of slavery in Egypt, I took care of you, and even then, you still broke the covenant. So this passage talks a lot about covenants, uh, and it's not really a word we use a ton in our normal language, so I thought it could be helpful to talk a little bit about what that word means, especially in biblical times. So usually when you see covenant in scripture, it refers to God making promises, and then there's some kind of commitment that the humans or the other people on the side of the covenant are asked to fulfill. But really, an understanding of covenant is deeper than that. 
because when you put it that way, it can kind of sound a little bit transactional. Like, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And that can feel really impersonal and kind of cold. But covenant is actually something much deeper. It's very personal and very relational. I, there's a scholar, a Bible scholar named Whitney Woolard, and she talks about it this way. I'm going to read a little quote from her. Um, and while I do, I'm going to put this up on the screen. It kind of gives you some of the big points uh, from what she says. She says, A covenant is a relationship between two partners who make binding promises to one another and work towards reaching a common goal. Covenants define obligations and commitments, but they are different from a contract because they are relational and personal. Think of a marriage. A husband and wife choose to enter into a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in lifelong faithfulness and devotion. They then work as partners to reach a common goal, like building a life together. So you see that covenant is not transactional. It's not just something that uh, is like a contract. It's a relationship, and it's a deep personal relationship. And when you think about that in context of what we've been looking at in Jeremiah so far, Jeremiah has not remained partners with God. They have not kept up that relationship. Instead, they've turned away from him. They've forgotten the ways of God. They've forgotten the ways that God has provided for them, the ways that God has cared for them and healed them. They forgot how he uh, has taken them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And instead, if it's a little bit of a recap from what we've talked about in Jeremiah, they've turned towards things like broken cisterns, wells that hold no water, like we talked about in chapter 2. They've acted like hypocrites, not really living out their faith like they say they will or like they act like they will. And all along, Jeremiah has been telling them, you need to turn back. You need to turn from those ways of not following God and turn back towards him. You need to repent. But the whole time, the people of, uh, that Jeremiah is talking to don't listen. And as a result, the covenant is broken, and the people will end up going into exile, as we've been talking about. So now God is saying, okay, look at all of this, right? This is not working. Something needs to be uprooted and torn down, and something new needs to be built in its place. So I think it might have even been the first sermon of this series. Joel talked a little bit about uh, our garden at home. Because when we think about the idea of planting and uprooting, um, the people of Jeremiah's time would have been very familiar with agricultural language. That was like their world. And for us, our knowledge is, for most of us at least, probably limited to like our backyard gardens. And so this is kind of a, it's our in. It's our in to understanding what Jeremiah is talking about. And since uh, we've already been talking about our garden, I thought I would update you on the saga. Um, the basil is mostly under control now, but the big problem I've had lately is these strawberry plants. <laughs> so these have been in our garden since we moved into our house, which was like six years ago at this point. And who doesn't want strawberries, right? This sounds great. I buy strawberries at the store all the time. If I could grow them, that would be ideal. And so I've left them there, always hoping that something will grow. But it has been six years, 
and not a single strawberry have I ever seen in this garden. And yeah, it takes up a large amount of real estate in our garden bed, and it just is sort of starting to take over. It's starting to grow into the other plants that are there. And so this weekend, we finally said, it's enough. We need to take them out. So Joel ripped them all up. We took them out. I'm sure some of them will still come back because I don't understand how the things I want to grow never actually grow, but the things I want to not be there always come back. Uh, but the idea is kind of similar, I think, to what God probably was feeling when he thought about the people uh, in Jeremiah's time. He'd been waiting for some fruit to grow, for something, for these people to follow him and to follow his ways. And it had been years and years, and he sent prophet after prophet to tell them to turn back. And to this point, nothing has happened. So God said, there needs to be a change here. We can't keep doing things the way we have been doing it. We need a do-over. So this is where this new covenant comes in. But I think the next question that we need to ask is, how is this covenant going to be any different from the previous one? So I want to look again at those verses I read from Jeremiah uh, to look at how this one will be different. In verse 33, it says, This is the covenant uh, I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So he says, I'm going to put my law in their minds and on their hearts. In the past, in Israel's history, the law was written on stone tablets and given to them. So it was something that was external, outside of them. And yes, God showed up to give them these laws, uh, he showed them how he cared for them, but apparently that wasn't enough for the people of Israel to really help it sink into their hearts and into their minds. So God says this time it's going to be even more personal. And because of that, it's going to almost be second nature for the people to follow my laws and my desires. Instead of being something that's external to us, it's actually going to be in our own hearts and in our own minds. It's going to become hardwired into us, something that is so natural for us to follow. And when you think about covenants, it's hard to think of a lot of good examples for it because we don't really have a ton of relationships that fit that category anymore. Uh, I think marriage is a good example, but I think friendship also applies. When we have deep friendships with people, it's a similar thing. And maybe you've ever been in a relationship where, you know, the other person seems like they're really in the relationship, but there are things that you would like them to do that would help you feel appreciated or loved or cared for. And sure, you could spell it out for them and say, hey, I need you to do X, Y, or Z in order for me to feel cared for. And I'm just going to say, I am advocating for that, even though this example might sound like I'm not. Communication is like number one thing in relationships, so please have those conversations. But I think you can all relate probably to times where you've wanted that other person to just want to do those things. You don't want to have to spell it out for them. You just want them to want 
to serve you in that way or to love you in that way. And I think that is the type of relationship or the type of internalized uh, desires that God is talking about here. We will want to serve God. He won't have to spell it out for us in quite so many terms. We will actually have that desire to go and do it before he even asks. Sounds ideal. But when it comes to God and his new covenant that he's promising, we still have one very large problem in this new covenant. And it's still us. We are continually the problem in this relationship. If you've been with us in this series of Jeremiah, again, uh, returning back to a previous message, Jeremiah talks about how our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. We do not naturally want to follow God's ways. D.A. Carson says that we don't drift towards holiness. It's not our natural inclination to just follow God. And we see that with the people of Israel. They have not had a second nature to follow God and his ways. And yet, this is still what God promises in his new covenant. So what's going to happen that will help make this shift? Jeremiah doesn't spell it out exactly for us. Uh, He doesn't tell us exactly what it means for the law to be written on our hearts. You know, some of us would maybe want that. But he does give us the big piece that this whole new covenant is going to turn on. And that big piece comes from that last verse. He says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness is the key to this new covenant. The whole thing is going to hinge on forgiveness. We, as God's people, will know God in our hearts and in our minds and want to follow him because of God's forgiveness. One of the commentaries that, on Jeremiah that we've been reading uh, is written by a guy named John Goldingay, and he says this about how forgiveness is a piece of this new covenant. He says, forgiveness is more than a characteristic of the new covenant. It's the very basis of the astonishing workings of God. Divine forgiveness makes possible inner transformation, intimacy with God, and an inclusive community that delights in faithful living. It is, in fact, this forgiveness that will allow newness in the relationship between God and his people. So forgiveness is going to be the thing that helps us make that shift into the new covenant. And God says, this will happen. But unfortunately for the people of Jeremiah's time, he does not give a timeline. So let's look at what actually happens. Uh, We'll do a little history story time. I think it's always good to know um, just the history of what happens in the Bible. We often tend to, you know, jump from sin to, let's just jump straight to Jesus. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We will get to Jesus in this sermon. But sometimes it's helpful to know what happens in the in-between. What happened to the people of Jeremiah after he was done prophesying? So, like Jeremiah said, the people do end up going off into exile. They are taken into captivity. It's a huge, devastating loss for these people. They're pretty much taken straight from their homes. They're not allowed to be in their homeland. They're not allowed to be in their actual homes. Who knows if they're even still able to be close to the people that they were close to in this new world. They have to leave behind everything that they knew and go live and work for another nation. 
And this is true for about 50 years. They live in captivity, they work there, they live out their lives. And then eventually there is a ruler who allows them to go back to their homeland. So they return, and when they do, there's actually somewhat of a little revival that happens. We see this uh, in some of the later books in the Old Testament. Some of the people do return to worshiping God, and they repent, and they take the grace of being allowed to be back in their lands, back in their home, and they say, we've got to recalibrate. We've got to do things differently. And eventually, they even start to rebuild the temple, which would have been for them their place of worship, their place of being able to really connect with God. So in some ways, when you look at everything that Jeremiah says is going to happen, some of that seems like it has come true in the book of Jeremiah, or in that time period between Jeremiah and after. There, people are following Jesus again, or not Jesus, following the Lord again. They're rebuilding the temple so that they can have that close relationship with God again through the sacrificial system. Seems like all should be good. But as they're coming together for what would be like their groundbreaking ceremony for the temple, they're like ready to start rebuilding it and picturing the people in like hard hats with the giant ribbon and the scissors, you know. This is like their exciting time to celebrate, like we're rebuilding this, we're going to have this close relationship with God again. There's one group of people who just aren't feeling happy about it. We see this in the book of Ezra in chapter 3, verse 12. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So there's this group of older people who had been there for the first temple, who had been there for when it was the people of God following God, who are looking at this rebuild, and they're disappointed. They're looking at this small revival that is good in its own way and thinking, this is not what I thought God had promised. I thought we were going to have this beautiful new relationship with God, this new vibrancy, this beautiful new covenant, and this doesn't even seem to be the same as how it was before the exile. It doesn't even seem like it's as good as the old version. It's sort of like if you were a kid and your parents said, hey, next week or next year, we're going to go to Disneyland, right? We're going to go. It's going to be amazing if you've never been before. It's this big, you know, wonderful place for kids. Isn't it like the happiest place on earth, they call it? And when that time rolls around, you're getting ready, you're like, yes, Disney. You get there, and it's actually Como Town, I've actually never been to Como Town, so maybe I shouldn't uh, throw shade at it, but it's probably not as exciting as Disney, I'm going to guess. And for those people who are there, who had experienced what it was like with God's presence with them before, they're like, this is not it. This is not what I thought Jeremiah had promised us in this new covenant. This is not even the type of presence and relationship that we had with God before. But... God is not done with his people yet. So if you fast forward, big time jump, uh, 450 years later, after the time of Jeremiah, after the time of Ezra, we see that God fulfills his promise completely by sending his son Jesus to live, to die, and to rise again. 
Jesus is the one who comes to fulfill the new covenant in all its fullness. And this new covenant with Jesus coming and in all its fullness still hinges on one thing, and that thing is still forgiveness. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament explains how this all fits together. So if you are someone who wants to understand more how the Old Testament fits in with the New Testament, I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews. It does a lot of connecting the dots through the different storylines. And in this passage, this part of Hebrews, uh, it's explaining how this new covenant works with Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 8, it actually quotes that entire passage from Jeremiah that I read today, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It's the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament, which feels fitting for the longest Old Testament book in the Bible. Uh, And it explains, again, how this all fits together. So the author of Hebrews talks about how the Old Covenant was broken, which we have seen and we know from Jeremiah, and that this Old Covenant uh, needs to be restored into something new. And he's basically explaining how the New Covenant is better than the Old One. He says that Jesus offers himself as the one sacrifice to restore this broken covenant, and therefore he can offer forgiveness to anyone. So I'm going to read some of Hebrews 9 here. I want you to listen for those things as I read it. In verse 15, it says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And it goes on in verse uh, 25 and says, he didn't enter to offer himself over and over again, like the high priest enters the earthly holy place every year with blood that isn't his. If that were so, then Jesus would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Instead, he has now appeared once at the end of the ages to get rid of sin by sacrificing himself. People are destined to die once and then face judgment. In the same way, Christ was also offered once to take on himself the sins of many people. He will appear a second time, not to take away sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So it's saying here that Jesus sacrifices himself on the cross, and it's the ultimate sacrifice. It's a once and for all kind of a thing. And through it, we are welcomed back into God's presence fully. Through Christ, we have access to God with no need for the sacrificial system or the temple or all the things that go along with that. And as it says in verse 15, we are forgiven and set free from our sins, and we're welcomed in as sons and daughters in God's family who have access to the Father and receive the promised family inheritance. So bringing it all full circle, in Christ we have full forgiveness, that thing that that new covenant is going to hinge on, and that eventually leads to us wanting to follow Jesus. Because when we really understand what Jesus did for us, that incredible act of grace and sacrifice, it inspires us to follow Jesus. It writes the law in our minds and on our hearts. And it gives us a relational, personal covenant, a partnership with him. And like I said, it all hinges on that idea of forgiveness. 
And forgiveness isn't something we spend a ton of time talking about in our world right now. Uh, it's something that sort of gets pushed by the wayside as we say things like, well, you can do whatever you want. You do you. Hey, I don't agree with that choice, but you live your life. So if there's no standards by which we all try to follow, then there's no real need for forgiveness. Because how do you even decide what needs forgiving and what doesn't? And then add in the fact that we live in the Midwest where uh, even if we did think someone needed to be forgiven, we would never want to say it because we don't want to even imply that you had maybe done something wrong because, you know, we certainly don't want to offend anybody. And yet, I think that we've all made mistakes. We've all made decisions that we've later regretted, said things that we wish we could take back, done things that have hurt people that we care about. And when we do those things, we don't want to be met with, well, I certainly wouldn't have made that decision if I were you, but you do you, you live your life. No, we want someone to say, yeah, you made a mistake. You screwed up, but I forgive you. I love you, and I still want you in my life no matter what you do or how bad things get. And that's what God does. He pays the ultimate price in order to stay in relationship with the hard-hearted, the stubborn, the people who would not listen, who would not turn back to follow him. The people in Jeremiah's time, they heard Jeremiah say this stuff for 40 years, and they didn't bother to turn or to repent at all. They continually turn to broken cisterns, to wells that can't hold water, instead of going to the spring of water, living water himself. And yet, Jesus gives his own life so that this new covenant could be fully fulfilled that we could have a personal, relational partnership with God. just want to stop and think about the graciousness that God shows here, the love that he shows, the mercy that he shows. If you think about it in the context of marriage, which Jeremiah often talks about it, uh, uses that as an analogy, Israel has been unfaithful to God in their relationship. And in our minds, cheating and unfaithfulness is often grounds to break a relationship, especially if someone shows no remorse and has no intention of changing their behaviors. And yet that's the type of people that God still chooses to forgive. He loves his people so much that he says, I want to try again. I want to make this work. I will continue to show you grace after grace after grace because I want to be in relationship with you. So if you could take one thing away from the book of Jeremiah, I would hope that it's the idea that God is not done with us yet. He's not done with us as individuals, and he's not done with us as a church. No matter how dark things get, no matter how much you feel like you've screwed up, like you've sinned, like you've turned away from God or walked away from him, you can always turn back. And when you do, he is always there to greet you with forgiveness and a chance to be in relationship with him again. The people of Israel and Judah were so far from God, and God sent prophet after prophet to get them to turn back. 
And even when they didn't, he sent his own son because he loved his people so much that he wanted to be able to be in relationship with them again. And one of the helpful things about the book of Jeremiah is that it applies to us individually, and it also applies to us as a group of people who worship God and are choosing to follow him. I think it's easy right now, you hear a lot of negative things about the church, especially in America, and some of them are warranted. Some of it is very true. There are things that need to be uprooted and torn down. But the answer is not to just burn it all down and walk away from it. At least that's not what God does. He doesn't give up on this idea of this group of people following after him and living lives that show his glory. And so he's not done with us as individuals, but he's also not done with us as a church. And, not but, and there are still things that we need to uproot and tear down, that we need to turn away from so that we can follow him instead of our own wills. And we should learn from the example of the people in the book of Jeremiah and not follow what they did, not be so hard-hearted and so stubborn that they refused to listen to this message. We need to be willing to let God uproot and tear down in our own lives so that we can experience the grace and forgiveness that he offers. Because God's grace is beautiful, but it's only really truly seen in its true beauty when we understand why we need it. So as we wrap up this series and as I wrap up my message today, I want to ask you, what has God been showing you in your life this summer that needs to be uprooted and torn down? I know there have been things that God's revealed to me throughout this series, and I hope that that's been true of you as well. And as we wrap up today and as we you know, continue to wrap up this series of Jeremiah, I encourage you to reflect on what those things are. Ask God, where in my life am I not following you? Am I following my own will, my own desires? And where can I say, not my will, but your will be done? Because he wants to build and plant. He has wonderful plans, as we've talked about. He wants to plant grace and forgiveness and a deeper relationship with him, that covenantal partnership. And I think when we practice that, that turning from our sin and accepting that grace and forgiveness, we as individuals and we as a church will be healthier, be more kingdom-minded, and look more like him. So we're going to head into a time of reflection uh, through worship and through taking communion. And communion is a really perfect time to have those uh, conversations with God about what needs to be uprooted and torn down. Repent from your sin. Repent from the things that are, are holding you back from following him. And then right away we get to experience his grace through the reminder of communion. Communion reminds us of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. It reminds us of the love that he showed us and how far he was willing to go to offer us grace and forgiveness, and a renewed relationship with him. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to head into that time of worship and communion. Uh, I invite you to come and take communion. There is bread and juice, or if you feel more comfortable, we also have the prepackaged communion cups as well. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will head into that time. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. We know that we don't deserve it, uh, that we continually turn from you, and yet we are so thankful for the love that you continue to show us, that you continue to pursue us even when we don't turn back. So Lord, I ask that we would be people who reflect on that grace, who understand it in such a way that it's written on our hearts and in our minds, and it's something that becomes so second nature to us to want to follow you because of the great sacrifice that you have made for us. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.